As you're taking your seats, why don't you grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Acts. There are events that change the world. There are events that happen in history that alter the course of history. Inventions, discoveries, think of electricity or modern medicine, the industrial revolution which revolutionized the world producing a global economy, the overthrows of regimes, wars, even acts of terrorism like 9-11, things that are so significant that seem to rupture the fabric of history. And while there are many things that alter the course of history and change maybe the trajectory of history, there has been nothing in the history of the universe that has changed the trajectory of history like the cross of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is a history-making institution. The history of the church is unique and exists in a unique time period. And the the church has the ability to literally change the trajectory of history because it holds forth the center of all human history, the apex of all human history, the person of all human history, Jesus Christ. But there are few, even I would submit in the church of Jesus Christ, who grasp the importance and significance of the church. There are many people who simply believe the church just exists more or less for them, more for a social club, more to develop relationships, and maybe to do some good things in the world. But that is so far, so very far from the significance and importance of the church of Jesus Christ. The church is pivotal in the plan of God. It is crucial that we grasp as a local church the importance of what God is attempting and will accomplish in the world through the church. Peter is standing on the day of the birth of the church and he begins in a powerful way with the first Christian sermon ever preached. He stands to boldly declare and to explain the meaning of the events that have just unfolded. And if you're maybe just here visiting for the first time and you've missed where we've been, last week we saw the Spirit of God unleashed upon the 120 followers of Jesus Christ who made up the church at that time. And as the Spirit of God was poured out upon the church, they began to all speak in foreign languages. The people who had been gathering in Israel and Jerusalem in particular to celebrate the Pentecost heard the mighty works of God being proclaimed in their own languages and every one of them began to ask questions, some of them incredibly confused at what was taking place. What was taking place was so significant, it was so out of the norm, these Galileans who should not know any other language other than Greek, Hebrew, or Aramaic begin to speak languages that are absolutely unknown to them. Some were amazed and they were perplexed, asking what they ought to ask, what does this mean? Still, others mocking said that they are filled with new wine. They looked at them and said, these people are drunk, pay no attention to them. And so Peter stands up in the midst of this and he desires to bring clarity in the midst of their confusion. He desires to explain the significance of what's taking place because now in this moment, history is being altered in such a dramatic way. 
And so let's look at the text. We'll pick up at verse 14. And while this sermon really extends throughout the entire, entirety of chapter 2, we are going to pull it apart uh, one section at a time and really dig into what it means, and we need to spend some time understanding its significance for us today. Look with me at verse 14. It says this, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be made known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams." Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter stands up and he takes his usual position in leadership amongst the other 11. You can see that Matthias has been adopted into the realm of the apostles. And he stands and he begins to address the crowds. Multitudes at this point have gathered around, potentially upwards of 20, 30, 40, maybe 50,000 people. We know it's a significant number because out of the multitudes, 3,000 people will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. He stands up and he begins to proclaim, he begins to preach, and he begins to explain the meaning of the events that all these people are wondering about. The confusion is great, but the clarity will be even greater. People have just spoken in foreign languages, uttering by the power of the Spirit of God, the mighty works of God, the events of the cross, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ have been told to the people, but there is still confusion. What does this mean, they say? Some of them saying that these people are drunk, and Peter initially, he clarifies this, and he says, these people aren't drunk. It's the third hour of the day. It's nine o'clock in the morning. That's what that translates into for us. Some of you are saying, well, I know people who are drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning. Yes, I do too. But, but here in this context, in the context of the nation of Israel, listen, especially during festival times, this hour was reserved for prayer. This was not a party hour. And so Peter just kind of lays it out there. He's like, these people aren't drunk like you suppose. Come on, there's a better explanation to this. Nobody's drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning right now. Then what is this? Well, simply put, this is the beginning of the end. This is the history-changing, history-altering moment that the nation of Israel has been wanting for, that they have been longing for, and Peter begins to explain the meaning of Pentecost, Pentecost, and from this, we can glean three foundational principles for the church of Jesus Christ. The first is this, that what is being offered is the opportunity of a lifetime. You'll notice that Peter stands and he addresses them, and 
He lifted up his voice. In other words, he began to speak with authority, with clarity. Listen, but he began to speak in a loud voice, others translate. Some of you are like, why do you preach so much? It's a biblical precedent. Why do you yell so much? Biblical precedent right here, okay? He speaks boldly, loudly to the multitudes. He wants to address what's taking place. And interestingly, he goes right into the Old Testament and he wants to unpack a section of the Old Testament which he knows will bring clarity. So he goes to this passage in Joel from Joel chapter 2. And what he states at the beginning is incredibly important. Notice this in verse 16. It says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. You could translate it literally as him saying, this is that. This is the event that Joel looked forward to. This is the event that Joel talked about in his book. Now, to rightly understand this quote, we need to have an understanding of what was taking place in the time of Joel. There's a lot of confusion about what's going on, but we know this for certain. In the time of Joel, the nation of Israel was under great judgment by the hand of God. In fact, there was a plague of locusts that was unleashed by God because of Israel's unfaithfulness. And so they're suffering. They're experiencing God's punitive judgment right now, his heavy hand upon them. And what, what the Spirit of God says to the prophet Joel is, look, this is prefiguring a greater day of judgment to come. In other words, Joel is saying this, look, you think that this plague is bad, you think that the devastation and the chaos that you're seeing around you is bad, just you wait, there is a day coming, and this day points towards that day. In fact, it points toward a time period, a time frame in which God will work in unique ways. This prophecy of Joel comes in two parts. And he begins by addressing in verse 17, notice this, and in the last days it shall be. You might want to underline or circle that phrase because that is significant when it comes to biblical doctrine. And the first part of Joel's prophecy and what Peter wants to jump on is to explain that this is happening right now. The last days are here. When you think of the history of humanity, it has been unfolding in sections of time and there is an end to this time frame. Peter is saying that, that yes, God's plan, God's history has been unfolding, but we are in the final parts of that right now. You say, what's so significant about this period of time? Well, this is the time period that Israel looked forward to because it was the time when all of the promises given to Israel and given through the nation of Israel to the world were were beginning to come to fruition. All of these promises were about to come true. In these last days is a common Old Testament expression that speaks of the time, by the way, when the Messiah would come back and he would set up his kingdom on earth where he would rule and reign over his people. I was driving in this morning. If I can maybe give you an illustration to help you think about about this. I was driving in this morning and I crossed over the bridge, uh, one of those new bridges that are going over the 407. Anybody seen any of those? Do you remember like two or three years ago seeing the signs that saying the 407 was coming? And, and for like three years you're like, yeah, right. Right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I drive, I'm driving over this bridge this morning and I'm looking and pay, you know, the roads are being paved, the 407 is being paved, all of the, the signs are, you know, the, the, you know, the new signs, they're going to zap you for all your money, right? They're, they're being put in, those radars, whatever they are. 
And I remember thinking, there's like, sure this is coming. Yeah, when is this coming? When is this ever going to be finished? Well, there's a, a very real sense in which the nation of Israel was looking forward to the completion of these promises, and what they were seeing was this. Listen, though history was slowly unfolding, right now is the moment in history where God is saying to them, look, the end is near. Do you see how it's all unfolded? The preparations are being made. The groundwork has been laid. Everything is being put in place, and the end is almost here. It's like running a marathon, and if you've ever done that, you know it feels like it's never going to end. But this is the point in history. It's like the last hundred meters of the marathon where the finish line is in view. That is exactly what's being communicated here. Now is the time. Now is the opportunity that you have been waiting for. Now, what was unknown in the Old Testament was that there would be two comings of the Messiah. They believed that the Messiah was going to come, but they believed that he would come, and when he arrived the first time, he would instantly establish his kingdom, he would rule and reign, and Israel would have a place of prominence. What they didn't know, because it wasn't clearly unfolded yet, was that there was going to be a gap between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. He would first come as a suffering servant where he would lay down his life, but then he would return in glory and in power And we know that we have been living in this significant gap. It has lasted uh, just around 2,000 years up until this point. But Peter is declaring that the last days have been inaugurated. The beginning of the end is here. The beginning of this final days, these latter days, as it's phrased in the scriptures, have begun with the ministry of Jesus Christ, and the evidence or the confirmation of the beginning is seen right here in this event, the unleashing of the Spirit of God. And this is so significant because the church stands for for this time period. The church has operated, God has operated in the history of the world in different times, through the nation of Israel, through the people of God, but now there is a uniqueness to what the church is offering. There is a unique power that the church has been given, a unique place in the program of God. We as the church have been situated in history during this unique time. From where we proclaim that the end is in sight, you see, this is so important for the world to know and to hear from us. The end is in sight. The king is coming. We exist during this time period as an institution of hope for the world. We stand in the midst of the darkness and the confusion of our culture and our world, and we declare that something new has come. The promises of the Old Testament, the promises of God, they're real and they're here. What has been anticipated in the past has finally arrived now in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, what's significant about these last days is the unleashing of the Spirit. That's what Peter is wanting to explain. Remember, the Spirit has been poured out upon all of the believers and they're all speaking in foreign languages. That is what Peter is trying to explain. The pouring out of the Spirit is the sign that the last days have begun, and that what is available to them in this age is the opportunity of a lifetime. Every Jew that was gathered there were told that as a representative picture every, from every nation under heaven, they've all gathered and they're all listening, they're all hearing the mighty works of God in their own language, and now Peter, he explains what's happening in light of Joel 2. And the key to understanding this is to see the uniqueness of the Spirit being distributed to all the believers. That's the key there. That's the point. 
Now, some background that might help shed light on this. We have to be thinking in terms of what it was like under the Old Covenant versus what it was now like under the New Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, by that I mean this, the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law, that economy of God, the Spirit of God, generally speaking, was limited to only a few people. It was limited almost exclusively to men, and it was incredibly rare. Now, what is being seen in this new era under a new covenant where the Spirit's operation is being expanded beyond what was previously experienced? You'll notice what Joel, what Peter references in Joel here, and I'll just, I'll draw this out for you. He says this, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. That's the, the point being highlighted here. And notice what this will look like. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants. And notice here again, this kind of bookends the beginning and the end of this section. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. As Peter addresses the crowd, what he wants to make clear is this. The spirit of God is being poured out on every person. In other words, it's not just reserved for one person for a short period of time and for exclusively men anymore. Sons and daughters shall prophesy. Young men are going to have visions. Old men are going to dream dreams. And even servants, female servants and male servants will experience the outpouring of God's spirit. But just pause for a moment. You'll notice that he mentions a few different things. He's talking here about prophesying, he talks about visions, and he talks about dreams. Why does he mention those three three things? Is, Is this a call for us to be running after visions or running after dreams? Should we expect that every one of us should have visions and dreams from God? Is that what's going on here? Simply put, the answer is no. Is he telling us that all of us are going to be prophets, have the gift of prophecy, whereby, by just a little short definition, we re-receive direct revelation from God? No. This is not making a statement about the gift of prophecy. The Scripture deals with that in other places. It's not making a statement of whether or not the gift of prophecy is something that continues for this time period or extends throughout the life of the church. That's not the point that Peter is addressing here. What we know is that in the book of Acts, prophecy and visions and dreams, they're incredibly rare, aren't they? We'll see that as it unfolds. So what is Peter saying? What is God through the Holy Spirit and through the book of Joel communicating to the people of God? Simply put, he's communicating this, that these three things, listen, especially when you think of visions and dreams, you have to put yourself back in a a Jewish person's sandals for a minute, in their context. What did they think about when they thought about visions and dreams? Who had visions and dreams in the Old Testament context? The simple answer, sorry about that, the simple answer is this, prophets. Visions and dreams were modes of communication. They were the means by which God gave his revelation to these unique individuals. Unique is important here. Remember, prophets were incredibly rare. Very few people were called to be prophets of God. The prophets would stand before the people of God and they would communicate direct revelation from God himself. Sometimes that would come in the form of visions. Sometimes that would come in the form of dreams. Think of Daniel. Think of Ezekiel. The term prophecy, it functions as kind of an umbrella term. 
That's why it bookends this section. The pouring out of the Spirit and prophesying bookends this section. And what that's telling us is this. Listen, visions and dreams and prophecy, it's communicating the same thing. It's all the same thing. God had revealed himself in the Old Testament in very unique ways by the Spirit who would see dreams or visions, communicate directly with God, and then stand before the people of God and declare to the people of God, this is the truth from God. You see, those prophets, here's the point, listen, they experienced greater access to God than the average person, didn't they? They experienced not only greater access, if you listen, they experienced greater intimacy, personal intimacy with God. I mean, think of Moses who sat with God and talked to God like a friend. He met with him face to face. He experienced the glory of God, right? So much so that when he came down from the mountain, his face shone with the glory of God and the people were like blown away by the presence of God that was radiating off his face. They made him put a veil over his face. They had greater access to God. They had greater intimacy with God. Listen, they had greater knowledge of God. They had experienced the revelation from the mouth of God right to themselves. And as such, the prophets of God had greater usefulness in the hands of God. They were equipped for effective ministry for God, right? They were unique amongst the people of God. They would stand and declare the truth of all that God had revealed. That's the point. And what Peter is communicating here is this. Now, listen, where there was distinctions, where the prophet was a unique role, and he would have this unique relationship with God, right now, in this moment, all of those old distinctions are nullified. They're becoming obsolete. Now, all of the Lord's people, regardless, listen, I love this, of their gender, regardless of their age, regardless of their social distinctions. Do you see that in the text? That's the point that he's communicating. It doesn't matter who you are. If you have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, you now have the same kind of access. You now have the same kind of intimacy. You now have the same kind of knowledge. And you now have the same kind of effectiveness for the ministry that these prophets once had. This is another statement about the barriers being shattered when it comes to this new age of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God was no longer reserved for a few, would no longer empower a few, would no longer produce greater intimacy for a few. The Spirit of God would be poured out upon all. By the way, this is exactly what Moses longed for. There is an allusion here in this text to Numbers chapter 11. You don't have to turn there. Let me just kind of frame it for you. If you remember the story of the nation of Israel in Numbers chapter 11, the people of God have been liberated from bondage to Egypt. They're wandering around in the wilderness, and all of a sudden, they're sick of eating God's provision, right? Manna. And you remember what they call out for? Give us meat. I love those people. (laughs) Right? They're hungry for me. They want more. And, 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 you know, but here's the point. They begin to complain and grumble, right? God had rescued them. He had delivered them. He had provided for them in a supernatural way, food to eat. But still they want more. You can't please these people. We want meat, Lord. And so they complain and they grumble. And God punishes them by giving them so much meat they can't handle it. Some of you will feel like that after Thanksgiving weekend. 
what's identified in this section of Numbers chapter 11 is that there is a spiritual leadership problem over the multitude of people, over the nation of Israel. And so what God does is, you know, he through Moses, he gets Moses and he says, Moses, I'm going to give you some help because these people are sinful and they're rebellious. They keep on complaining. So what I'm going to do, I want you to select 70 men, 70 elders as representatives, and I want them to become the leaders alongside you of my people. And as a sign of the equipping for the ministry that God was giving them, you want to know what he did? He poured out his spirit upon 70 elders, and they all began to prophesy. But it's fascinating, right? This is an exciting moment. The spirit of God is coming on more people. That means that ministry is going to be greater and more impactful, more effective. But all of a sudden, there's two men who are outside the camp who are beginning to prophesy as well. And Joshua, he looks at this and he's jealous for Moses. He's like, Moses, like, because listen, these 70 men, their prophesying was for a time and then it stopped. These two other men outside the camp begin to prophesy. And so Joshua comes and goes, Moses, you got to stop these guys from prophesying. This isn't right. I mean, they're stealing your thunder, Moses. And in that moment, it's fascinating, okay? Because you have to think, Moses is looking at the people of God, and he is saying, how will these people ever be what God calls them to be? They're wicked, they're sinful, they're like you and me, right? How will we be who God ever wants us to be? And his answer is stunning. Numbers chapter 11, verse 29, it'll be on the screen here. He says, but Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. You see, the desire of Moses was this. Look at the only thing that's going to revolutionize and change the people of God is if God unleashes his spirit upon every person. And in saying this, he actually looks forward to this day in history when the spirit of God is unleashed upon all people. The longing of his heart is for people to have God's spirit that they might walk in obedience with God, that they might walk with greater intimacy with God, that they might have greater usefulness to God, that they might be the people who would be a light to the nations. Do you see the emphasis here? They need the spirit. And the opportunity of a lifetime is is this. We now live in a period of time where the knowledge of God is intended to advance through the church of Jesus Christ. See, how is that ever going to be possible? Like this, God knows that in our weakness we cannot do it. He knows that what's required is a greater knowledge and intimacy and relationship with Him, and so what He does is in His grace, He unleashes His Spirit upon all those who bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And He gives them in that, listen, a greater depth of relationship. He allows us to experience the illuminating power of the Spirit of you. say, like, greater knowledge of God, is that really happening? Yes, look, the Spirit of God is operating right now, if you're a follower of Christ, operating right now in your life to illuminate the truth of His Word, to bring you to greater depths of understanding of the glory of God, the character of God. He is producing right now in our hearts greater conviction, greater encouragement. He is equipping our hearts because of that proximity that we experience, the Spirit of God dwelling with inside us. Listen, the living God inside us is giving us everything we need to now be effective for the ministry that he calls us to. For the first time in history, this is possible. That's the church. There is a sense in which all God's people are now prophets in the same way the New Testament affirms that we are also all priests and kings. 
Because we all now, listen, have an analogous relationship with these prophets where God has given us all that we need to stand before not only the people of God, but the world around us and declare, thus saith the Lord. We bear witness to the truth. We are sent to bear witness, and so God makes sure that we know that we are equipped for the work of the ministry. So Peter here unfolds for the crowd, and he makes this claim that, listen, now is the time that we have been waiting for. The Spirit of God is here, and we can be effective in the ministry that God calls us to. There's a sense in which what we need to hear is this, because we know him, we must make him known. But pushing us forward onto this mission is the second point here, the urgency of a deadline. It's one thing to be granted an opportunity. It's a whole other thing to experience a greater degree of urgency, a, a deeper motivation to accomplish what's set before us. Now, if you're anything like me, a deadline um, is sometimes meaningful, sometimes not. I spent a lot of my early years in school asking for extensions. Anybody here with me? There are times when my extension requests were denied. And here's what you have to see here. There is no extensions on the deadline that God has established. And that is intended to create a sense of urgency. The mission of the church is unfolding along a divine timeline. There is a time period that has been determined by God, and our effectiveness is critical during this time frame. There's a second part of Joel's prophecy that's mentioned here. If you look down at verse 19, we'll pick up there. He continues unfolding Joel's prophecy, and he says this, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord. Circle that phrase. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you look at these events, one of the things that Joel is wanting to establish, remember, he's not trying to communicate. I believe there's a, a, a formula being used in, in Hebraic literature here that is identifying a partial fulfillment of the words of Joel, but he's also making clear that some of it has not yet been fulfilled. There's still a time coming, there is a close to this age, and it will be identifiable. This is not, some people believe this is uh, the, the things that are being discussed here, all of these signs and wonders this, that they're referring to the cross. And though there are some allusions, I believe the cross in one sense, uh, some things happened, right? There was darkness that covered the earth and you know, there was a, a, a lot of kind of interesting things going on around the time of the cross. These signs point forward to a greater, more climactic end that is being described here. These things haven't happened yet, that's his point. We're awaiting, verse 19 says, wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, and look at this, it's very descriptive, and it's possible, by the way, that these are uh, symbolic, but there's also a possibility that there is a literal aspect to what's being established here, and I think there's a little bit of both, to be honest with you. Blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Remember, he's declaring that a new era of the outpouring of the Spirit on all people has begun. 
He's established that we are in the last days. The apostles understood this and they recognized that the last days would not last forever. The last days have been inaugurated and they will ultimately be consummated. There are multiple phases to these last days. The next phase to be aware of is what's referenced here as the day of the Lord. And we're going to get to explaining what that means. The church has been given a window of opportunity that will close. God here, through these powerful words from the prophet Joel, give a glimpse of the end. The theological term is eschatology, the doctrine of end things. It's a topic that is fascinating and that many people are confused about, and rightly so. There's a lot that's utterly confusing. But the point is this. The church has been given this window, and it's coming to an end. A glimpse of the end things gives a sense of urgency. In other words, there's a sense in which God has wound up the divine clock, and it's beginning to run out. Think about the significance of that for a minute and how that might impact the way we live our lives and operate as a church. We do this um, with, with our kids, particularly my son. My son Joshua is five years old, and he struggles to eat his food at the table. It's painful. We will sit as a family, and we'll have our meal, and we'll all be scarfing it back and finished, and Josh will sit there. It will look like he's hardly touched a piece of food on his plate, and we're all saying, like, Josh, do you, do you want to do anything after dinner? Would you like to sit here for the next two hours? And he just kind of sits there, and he plays with his food. So what we've done, we found this really works effectively. We set a timer. Now, I'll set my, my timer. I'll say, Josh, you have five minutes to finish your food. And then he'll look at me, and he's, he's five now, so we've been doing this for a little while, and, and it's quite effective. And he looks at me, and he says, well, Daddy, of five minutes, he's like, what happens after that? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, you can see his mind working, right? He's, he's wondering, he's looking at his food, he's looking up at me, and he's wondering, um, is this going to be worth it? Like, should I wait this out a little bit longer? Like, what are the consequences? If you tell me what they are, maybe I'll think about um, how quickly I actually want to go here. And oftentimes as he asks that, you know that time as a parent when you really haven't thought that far ahead? <laughs> You're like, oh, uh, oh, it's going to be bad, right? That's what you say. <laughs> oh, you don't, you don't want to know. That's right. That's what I always throw down. And he's actually getting smarter. So he's like, well, can you just give me an idea? Like, <laughs> calls your bluff. What we've found is that, you know, by the way, I, I always set it with the scariest alarm at the end. You know, the blaring of, bah, 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 like, just to scare the daylights. But here's what we notice. Like, we'll set this timer. We'll be we're like, Josh, this is serious. I mean, if you get to the end of this, if the time runs out, there's going to be consequences. And we're not sure what they are right now, but it's going to be bad. You're going to want to eat your food. And sure enough, you know what he does? In like 30 seconds, he polishes off his entire plate of food. Just, just incredible what a little bit of healthy motivation can do, Right? We see God wants to function in one sense in the same way with us. Because how often are we going about our life, and, and listen, this, isn't this the reality of our culture around us? And this is what the Bible says about those who live in the last times. They'll be going along as if there's nothing to worry about. Like there's, you know, everything's just normal. It's all just kind of flowing the way it always has been. And when the end comes, it will come in such an unsuspected, this just literally, it will shock people how quickly it comes. Listen, here's what's really scary. For so many Christians, we live like the world. We, we live knowing that the end is coming, but we don't live like we know the end is coming. We believe the end is coming, but our life does not in any way reflect that truth to the world because we just go along doing our things, prioritizing what we believe is important, what we love. 
The divine clock is ticking. It's counting down. And when the sands of time run out, there will be consequences. And But here's, listen, we know what those consequences are. And that's what's scariest of all. Verse 19, the signs here are staggering. Wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. And look, the, the, the idea here is this. This will be global. It will be catastrophic. It will be visible wherever you are. In the heavens and on the earth, there is no place you will be able to run from the effects that are coming, from the consequences that are coming. Elsewhere in Scripture, these same signs are connected to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the book of Revelation in particular graphically describes what will occur at the return of Jesus Christ. In fact, flip forward, hold your finger in Acts and flip forward to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, chapter 8. And I just, there are so many verses I could read, but I just, I want to read you a section to just give you a sense, and you see, you'll see some of the, the language and the imagery reflected in Revelation chapter 8. Look at verse 5 with me. It says this, then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar, and he threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on the earth and the rivers and the springs of water. I mean, we could go on, but I want you to, John is seeing a vision of what I believe is predominantly future. And what he sees is literally the world coming undone. It is unraveling at the seams. Everything is in chaos. Everything is being utterly shaken. God is unleashing. Listen, this is what's happening in Revelation. God is unleashing his wrath upon the earth. And it's coming in waves after waves, and it's getting worse and worse, and it's all leading up to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his point is this, the end is drawing near. In the scripture, the day of the Lord, the phrase that's used here by Peter and in the book of Joel, it signifies, and this is part of this is getting back into the Hebrew mind, what did they think when they heard the day of the Lord? Because this phrase is repeated often throughout scripture. It signifies the extraordinary, miraculous interventions of God in human history for the purpose of judgment culminating, listen, in his final judgment of the wicked on the earth and the destruction of this present universe. 
The Old Testament prophets viewed the final day of the Lord as a day of unparalleled judgment and darkness and damnation, a day in which the Lord would completely destroy his enemies, he would vindicate his name, he would reveal his glory to all the earth, and he would establish his righteous rule physically over the earth. I feel the need to bombard you with Scripture. If you want, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 2. Keep your hand in, uh, in Acts. We're getting back there. And I won't make you turn. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read to you some Scriptures, but I want you to see this one, and then I want to show you some others. You know, sometimes, sometimes I think just letting Scripture speak for itself is so powerful because God's Word is so often very clear, and sometimes it needs very little explanation. Isaiah chapter 2, if you just follow, just pick up a verse 10, and the subtitle in my Bible, by the way, of this section is the Day of the Lord. It says, enter into the rock and hide in the dust. This is talking about the people who exist on the earth during the time of the day of the Lord, by the way. From before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low. This is, this is listen, this is when Jesus returns. What will it look like? What will people do? Listen, here's what it will look like. The haughty, the people who are prideful, the people who resisted the Lord, the people who were sufficient in themselves, the people who refused to bow the knee to Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what it looks like. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan. Those who think they're strong will be shattered when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Against all the lofty mountains and against all the lifted up hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And here, catch this, and the idols shall, shall utterly pass away. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground. By the way, there is a parallel in the book of Revelation to this. From before the terror of the world, people are hiding in the ground. They see the world coming undone, and they fear for their lives. They tremble, and they run to any place they believe will give them refuge. But do you want to know what they will find? There is no refuge from the mighty terror of the Lord. From the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Listen, this is not a pleasant day. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs, and before the terror of the Lord, and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Just listen now. Turn back to Acts. Just listen to these scriptures. Isaiah 13, 6, Wail for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. 
verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, to destroy its sinners from it. Jeremiah 46.10, that day is the day of the Lord, God of hosts, a day of vengeance, to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and drink its fill of their blood. For the Lord, God of hosts, holds a sacrifice in the north country by the river Euphrates. Ezekiel 13.5, you have not gone up to the breaches or built up a wall for the house of Israel, that it might stand in the battle in the day of the Lord. Ezekiel 30, verse 3, for the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations, Joel 1.15, alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Joel 2 verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done it, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. The great day of the Lord is near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A sample, listen, a sample of what the Old Testament believers knew about the coming of King Jesus. The Old Testament prophets use this expression to describe as a prefigurement near historical judgments and distant future judgment to come. The New Testament writers Name it this, listen, the day of wrath, the day of visitation, the great day of God the Almighty. The New Testament writers foresaw that day as an awesome and fearful event. Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31, just listen to what Jesus says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Revelation 6, 12 through 14, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain island was removed from its place. Can you get a picture of the devastation that is coming when Jesus Christ returns? There is no one who can hide. 
These are horrifying judgments. You say, why are, why, why are you telling me all this? Because God wants the day of the Lord in the mind of everybody who has bowed the knee to Jesus Christ as a motivation, as a, listen, to create within us, to inject into our mission a sense of urgency. Do you see he is coming? And when he returns, it will not be pleasant. It will be horrific. And anyone who has not bowed the, name, the knee to Jesus Christ, listen, will suffer more than they can possibly fathom. Now's the time, do we see this? Now's the time, you say, we, listen, we live in the time frame in history where we are calling out to people with the power of the Holy Spirit, be reconciled to God. Do not put off the day of salvation. The day of his return is coming and it's nearer now than when you first believed. Second Peter 3.10 says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You see, this is a day of great and final judgment. It comes quicker than you will ever realize. It will be unexpected, it will be without warning, it will be disastrous for those who are unprepared. And those who know, listen, those who know, those, look, those who know, that's me and you, those who know, how can, we, how can we not tell people? Like if you knew, listen, some of you don't know Jesus Christ, and you're saying like, this is pretty heavy, like to, to, I've, I've been told by people, like why don't you keep your beliefs to yourself? If I knew that somebody was standing on the road and a bus was literally charging towards them, I would do everything in my power to warn them from their fate that was inevitable. Christians, Christians, this is our job. We're sent to the world because we have the message of hope. We have the message of salvation. And one of the things we have to hold out before you say, practically speaking, does this play into how we evangelize? Yes, listen, we cannot not tell people that they will stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and give an account, that their life will be exposed before him and that he will judge them with righteous, holy judgment and that they will not escape his wrath. We can't afford not to tell people that. We have to warn them. See, Ian, this sounds terrifying. Yes, yes. Do you see, do you see why we have to be so urgent with this? That person you've been thinking about, the person you've been avoiding telling, the person you've been fearful of telling, the, person, the neighbor you've been fearful to share the gospel with or get to know and, and have a relationship with, the, the place that you, God has put you in to be a pillar and a buttress for the truth, a light to the people around, that wherever that is, listen, it is time now to act. It is not time to shrink back in fear. It is time to step up as the church of Jesus Christ. So let me just give you just three really practical applications of this. I want to encourage you and encourage myself, my own heart, because of the sense of urgency, the return of Jesus Christ. First this, have urgency in your personal holiness. That's part of the mission, church. We're only as effective as we are holy and pure. 
Okay, there are many vessels in the Father's house, 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. There are many vessels in the Father's house. There are some that are fit for honorable use and some that are fit for dishonorable use. The ones that are fit for honorable use, listen, they cleanse themselves, they purify themselves, they get rid of sin, and they put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're prepared to be faithful ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, be urgent in your pursuit of holiness through the power of the Spirit of God and by His grace. Be urgent in your service your second point of application. Not just urgency in personal holiness, urgency in your service. Listen, the church is God's plan to prepare and use us. All the importance in this era, in this time period, lies in the church of Jesus Christ. There are so many people that I talk to who don't believe the church is important, who believe they can survive and live the Christian life without it. I'm just telling you right now, that is anti-biblical. You cannot be a Christian and say you will have nothing to do with the church. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ. If you say that you respect me and you disrespect my bride, guess what you're really saying about me? The bride of Christ is precious to Jesus. If we say we love him, we must love his bride. We must invest ourselves in the bride of Christ. This is not an optional doctrine. This is primary. It is paramount because the church of Jesus Christ is the vehicle that God is using in this great time period to impact the world. This is so crucial. And we can, listen, the quicker you get this, your significance does not lie in your personal accomplishments, okay? Your significance and your value, the legacy you leave, will have not, everything you do in this life will burn up and will pass away. Your business, your pursuits, the accolades and the glory of men will not last forever. What we do in the church of Jesus Christ will last for eternity. That is the place where God calls us to invest ourselves, to pour ourselves into, to serve and to play our part for the building up of the body of Christ and the going forth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you've heard it already, but I'll say it again. So urgency in holiness, personal holiness, urgency in our service in the church and urgency in evangelism in our lives. Listen, we must be urgent for the time is drawing near. And I love what Peter models here because as he works through this beginning portion of the text, he presents not only the opportunity of the lifetime, he, he pushes into the life and mission of the church the urgency of a deadline, but lastly, he presents to those who are surrounding him the offer of a lifeline. You see, we hold out to people two great but opposing truths. We proclaim the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we proclaim that there is salvation in no other name under heaven but the name of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice what Peter does as he steps forth, as he lays forth, listen, the reality of divine judgment. He says this, and it shall come to pass that everyone, listen, everyone, it's, this message is available to all those who will heed it. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Just circle that word name. Listen, the name is going to become one of the primary features of the next six chapters in the book of Acts. And Peter is about to unfold what is so significant about the name of Jesus. We'll start that next week, don't worry. But what is offered here through the mouth of Peter is this, there is either great judgment or by the grace of God, he holds out hope of a greater salvation 
Look, judgment is coming because of our sin. The question is, who will take care of our sin? Who will pay the price for our sin? And the answer from Peter is Jesus Christ. All Jews knew that the day of the Lord would be a terrible day for many. In the midst of this great and terrible day, the question is, who can stand? Don't turn there, just listen. We we already read part of this, but let me read the rest because it's so powerful. Revelation 6 says this, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became as black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit was shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks. Do you see the parallels there with Isaiah? Of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Please don't choose judgment. Peter holds out a lifeline and he offers great salvation. He says, call in this great and magnificent day before this day arrives, call upon the name of the Lord. Yes, this day, listen, it will be terrible for those who reject Jesus Christ, but the only hope of humanity is to call upon the name of the Lord. All throughout the Old Testament, the Jews had experienced great deliverance from the hand of the Lord. They had known what it is to call upon the name of the Lord. They knew that the God of this universe was a God of great grace and a great love. What they hadn't understood up to this point was the lengths that he was willing to go to to provide for their salvation. Peter is about to explain how the God of this universe stepped into human history, became a man, suffered, died, and rose victorious, all so that life could be offered in his name, so that, listen, sinners could be spared from the wrath to come because God's Son had received that wrath upon himself. This was the beginning of the end. It may be that we are nearing the end of the end. Do you believe that? I believe we're getting close. There's a few more meters left in the marathon. A few more steps to be taken. And we are driven by the same truths as the early church. We have been given the opportunity of a lifetime church. The church is a history-making institution. We're living in the last days, and God has seen fit to give the church an incredible opportunity to turn the world upside down. We are called by God to leave a legacy, to make a difference, to make history. The church's job is to make history by proclaiming the center of history, Jesus Christ. We have the urgency of a deadline for this. Jesus is coming again, and when he comes, he will rule and reign. He will exact justice and vengeance. His name will be vindicated. He will come in glory, but he will come in judgment. No one will escape. All will be exposed. Everyone will give an account. So we are sent to offer a lifeline. We offer salvation in the name of Jesus alone. 
We go in his name and we go with his presence, in his power and for his glory.